Welcome to the Factory Youth Podcast. This is a weekly teaching podcast from the Factory Youth at Calvary Chapel, Vera Beach. We've been learning really about King David, what made him the greatest king in Israel's history. We're talking about what made him a worship leader, one of the best songwriters, worship songwriters of all time, what made him a man after God's heart, and then ultimately what, why God chose him to make Jesus come into the world through his line. And really the application for us is similar. We want to be great in what God has called us to be and do. We want to serve God faithfully with where we're at. We want to be people that are after God's heart. And we want to be be people that bring Jesus into our world. Now, at this point in the story, King Saul, who is the current king of Israel, has died. Shane taught a couple weeks ago on the death of Saul. And now David has been officially anointed and set up as king. Now, if you remember, it was almost 20 years earlier that God told David, hey, you are the king of Israel. You are going to be the king of Israel. And now 20 years nearly, about 15, have passed before David actually gets to this moment. Imagine David's about 14, 15 years old. He's watching the sheep for his dad. This this, uh, prophet comes into town and says, you are the next king of Israel. All right, sounds good. 15 years pass, almost, uh, he's, he's now 30, he's, he's my age, he's old, he's turned 30, and he's like, when is this going to happen? I just turned 30, by the way, that's why I said that. Um, shout out me for turning 30. Um, and so David has been waiting all of this time, and now the reason what God has promised is finally coming about. And we see in this text that we're going to look at tonight the first thing that David does as king. And what he does is he brings God into the center of the people of Israel's lives. The first sort of uh, strategic move that David makes as the king of Israel is he takes God and he puts him at the center of the people's lives. He does this by bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, meaning the presence of God would be at the center of Israel's government. He sets up the tabernacle in the center of Jerusalem, making the presence of God accessible to all. And then he begins a 24-hour prayer and worship service in the tabernacle that all are welcome to attend. And then he instructs the people in God's word and in God's ways. This is what he does right off the bat. He is now king. Saul's dead. David is king. What are you going to do? What's your plan? What's your strategy? And the first thing he does is he brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, sets up the tabernacle in the center of Jerusalem, sets up a 24-hour worship and prayer service that all can attend, and begins to teach and instruct the people in God's word and God's ways. He makes God the center of the nation. So tonight we're going to talk about really what he did in order to make God the center. And I've titled this message, if you want to write this down, Bring God into the Center. I don't think I gave any points or verses. Um, it's on the app, though. If you follow the Version Bible app, it is there. But the, my point tonight, or you could write it down. The first point is bring God into the center. We're going to see how we, how we did that. The first thought this morning is you write this down, or tonight, God, I'm all over the place. It's because I don't have my iPad. Um, Is this, good intentions and good theology. 
In order to bring God into the center, you need both good intentions and good theology. Let's look at the text. We're in 1 Samuel, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 6. It says this, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, Ohio, son of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ohio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with uh, Castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals, you know, like the worship team up here, all their instruments. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, this place is called Perezuza. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom in the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Okay, what's going on? So David, king, he decides, first act is I want to bring God into the center. That's my first goal as king is I want God the center of my life and the center of the people's lives. And so in order to do that, he says, we need to get the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 4. The Israelites then recovered it, but uh, because the Philistines didn't want it anymore, they sent it back. And then it resided for all of this time in a person's house. David had caught wind of it and said, do you know what? We need to restore the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a physical physical representation of the presence of God. This would be stored in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle to be visited by the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. It was a very special, special thing, this Ark of the Covenant. It represented and would oftentimes be literally filled with the presence of God. And David's saying, as the king over Israel, I want the presence of God center, front and center in our nation's worship and lives. And so he says, we're going to go get the Ark of the Covenant. So they go, they get the Ark of the Covenant. We're told they set it up on a brand new cart. This thing was like brand spanking new. Like, you know how cars, the year you buy, like a brand new car is actually next year's date. Like you can get a 2023, like Ram in 2022. Like that's the new car. Ram, Dodge, Ram, you know, whatever. <laughs> you, you, it's like a brand new car. They bring it. They set the Ark of the Covenant on there, and they begin to bring it to Jerusalem. And we're told they're, they're fired up. They're worshiping. They're celebrating. They're so pumped. And then all of a sudden, the ox stumbles. The ox that's dri- driving the new cart stumbles. The Ark of the Covenant, what, what is implied, is begins to slip off the cart. And some guy tries to prevent it from falling. He touches the Ark of the Covenant, immediately dies on the spot. 
So imagine, we're in a worship service, everything's like, yeah, hallelujah, Ark of Covenant's coming back. God is coming back to the center of Jerusalem. We're restoring the presence of God back to Israel. This is amazing. Brand new cart, because that's how much we love God. Not an old cart, a brand new cart. We're sticking the Ark of the Covenant on there. We're bringing it into Jerusalem. We're all fired up. Yeah, the ox falls. Uzzah reaches out and dies. And you're like, what's going on? I thought we were restoring worship back to Israel. What you have to understand, God has actually given them instruction on how to both use the Ark of the Covenant and carry the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was designed by God to be carried by the priests, specifically from the family of Levites from a very specific family. The family was called Koath, and they were supposed to carry it. The Ark of the Covenant wasn't supposed to be set on a, on a cart or a car or on a bus. It was supposed to be carried by the Levites, specifically by this family of Koath. And the Ark of the Covenant was not supposed to be touched. They had these long wooden poles that would stick out on either side and the Levites, four of them would carry it, one on each side. And that's how they were supposed to carry the Ark of the Covenant. The instructions were very clear by God all the way back in earlier books of the Bible to talk about this is how the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be both moved and used. And here they are with good intentions but bad theology. In other words, they had a great idea. We want God at the center of our lives. But they didn't fully understand what that meant to have God at the center of their lives. In order to make God the center of our lives, we have to actually allow him to be in control. And we have to obey what his word says. God isn't an addition to our lives. We don't just add him into our lives to bless what we're already doing. God at the center means we do what he instructs, even if it's inconvenient, different than what we want or difficult to understand. We need to understand that Jesus at the center of our lives is not just a commodity. It's not an accent point. It's not just this, this piece that we add. Okay, Jesus, I want you at the center. Come on in and help me do what I want to do. No, Jesus at the center means you're in control, Jesus. You're in charge, and I'm going to do what you tell me to do. I'm going to follow your ways. I'm going to follow your instructions, even when I don't understand them, even when they're difficult, even when they might be confusing. And so these guys had good intentions and bad theology. And so in order for us to have Jesus at the center of our lives, we need good intentions and good theology. We need to allow God's word to both instruct us and correct us and direct us into the things that he has for us. So where do we find good theology? Well, it starts by studying God's word. It starts by reading it. It starts by understanding what God says, what his ways are, the direction that he has. In fact, if they would have opened up the scrolls, if they would have opened up the word of God, they would have seen this is how the Levites are supposed to carry the Ark of the Covenant. They could have avoided this situation altogether. They could have got it right the first time. But instead, they got all spazzed out, all excited over good intentions, but they missed a really important key. And what does God's word say about what they're doing? So in order for us to have Jesus at the center, we need to make sure that we, have, we understand what exactly that means. The second thing, in order to have God at the center, it, it means God is who we aim to please. God is who we aim to please. Let's continue with the story. We left off in verse 12. 
It says, now King David was told that the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So they leave it there. David's like, I'm out. This is too confusing. This is too difficult. I don't want a part of this. And so they leave it there. Well, God, because he's gracious and he's merciful, the house that they left it at begins to be blessed. And for three months, Obed-Edom, his house is being blessed. I'm sure his crops, his life, everything is just favor with his family, favor with friends. Everything's going great. And they're like, hey, David, you know, remember you, you, you left the, the Ark of the Covenant like on some rest stop somewhere? And Obed-Edom's house, is, it's there now. His house is being blessed. And David hears about it and he's like, wait a second. And so, so he says, so David went to bring up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. rejoicing. When those who were noticed this word carrying the ark of the Lord, had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Already, we see that David went back and did his homework. No longer is it on his cart. It's not on a cart anymore. The Levites are carrying it. He's doing what's right. So immediately they take six steps, they stop, they offer a sacrifice to God. Verse 14, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, uh, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in his heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israel, both men and women, and to all the people. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar vulgar fellow would. Whoa, what a greeting. David said to Michael, I was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. Yikes. Or anyone from... Or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. All right, another very strange portion of scripture. So, good intentions, bad theology. They want to bring God to the center. They don't get it right. They go back. They open up God's word. They realize, wait a second. It's not supposed to be on a cart. It's supposed to be carried. We're going to carry it. So they bring it back into the, they're bringing it into Jerusalem, up towards the tabernacle. And there's this big worship service in the street that's happening as they celebrate this fact that God's presence is being restored to the center of Israel. And David, in an act of worship, in an act of excitement and celebration, he is losing his mind. He's celebrating, he's dancing, he's singing. He is overcome with joy about the goodness of God and the grace of God. And David, in this moment, I think, was a true worship leader because he was setting the pace and other people were following. David doesn't necessarily have to be on stage to be a worship leader. 
You, you, you lead worship by leading others towards God in your worship, by setting the pace and setting the stage of this is what it looks like to worship. Hands raised, dancing, singing, and looking like a fool. And we're told that his wife was embarrassed of him. She looked down from the palace as David worshipped and lifted his hands and praised. And she shook her head in disgust and embarrassment as he made his way towards the palace. She then confronts him with this situation. She says, how embarrassing. You, you, you made me look so foolish. You look so dumb out there. You can't even dance. You can barely sing. You made me look so dumb. Right? She's embarrassed of the situation. But David responds that in very, there's a, I mean, you can't hear the tone, right? I think like texting has kind of ruined how we read some conversations. You know how like, you ever text old people and they just put like, okay, like the letters? And you're like, they must be so mad right now. Like old people don't know how to put like tone in their texts. Like they're like, okay, and they mean like, okay, that sounds great. But you're like, what did I do? Like sometimes we read texts like this and we're like, What's the tone? So I don't know. Maybe it was a clap back when he was like, God made me over your dad. I don't know. You can't sense the tone. But David does say something very beautiful in this moment. David responds that he will humiliate himself even more if it celebrates and honors God. He says, I will become even more undignified than this. He wasn't doing it for the spectacle. He wasn't concerned with the attention it brought him. He was focused on worshiping God. Listen to me. We don't worship God to bring attention to ourselves. We don't make God the center of our lives to promote ourselves. But we also aren't to stop doing it because it brings on criticism from others. God at the center of our lives means we aim to please him. And that's what David summarizes. That's what he says. He says, I'll get, I'll get more undignified. I'll look more ridiculous. I'll look more foolish. I'll sound more out of tune. I will dance even worse if it humiliates me and yet honors and celebrates God. Because worship isn't about the people around us. Worship isn't about the attention that it brings or doesn't bring. Worship is about Jesus. Worship is about him. It's about lifting up his name. And like uh, John the Baptist would say, he, he would say that his goal is that he might decrease so that Christ could increase. And that's the goal, is that our lives would point people to Jesus. And, and David says, my goal isn't to please you. My aim isn't to make you happy. That's not my objective. My goal is to honor God. The third thing we see in this text, not only is God at the center being about good intentions and good theology, not only is it about God it being who we aim to please, but the third thing is that God writes our story. Let me explain. In the next chapter, so this story concludes, there's this confrontation between him and his wife, but he explains that he's about worshiping God. That's his chief aim. 
The story ends and then the next chapter begins and some time has passed. It's not immediate, but some time has passed. And we're told that David is sitting in his palace and he's looking down now at the restored place of worship between uh, the people of Israel and God at the center of Jerusalem. The tabernacle is there. The Ark of the Covenant is there. And David is sitting up in his palace. And he looks down at the the temporary dwelling place, this tent that the presence of God was living in. And he looks at his mansion, his palace that he's living in. And he's thinking, something isn't right here. He, He says, I shouldn't be living in a house of cedar while the presence of God is dwelling in a tent. And he's like, there's something not right here. And so he births this desire, this ambition to build God a house, which later we would call the the temple. And this is his desire, to make a permanent dwelling place for God in Israel. He didn't want it set up and taken down. He didn't want it taken captive. He wanted it permanent in in the nation's capital. And so he gives birth to this desire. I want to build a, a permanent dwelling place to God. This desire stems from the peace and prosperity that God has provided for David. And David wants to sort of return the favor. But then listen, God responds to David's desire with an answer. This is in the next chapter, beginning in verse 5. It says this. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? God speaking. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with the tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commended or commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. And I've done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. We have this scene where instead of David building God a house, God promises to build David a house. So here, imagine this. David's sitting in his palace. He's looking out at the Ark of the Covenant in the tent, and he's thinking, there's something not right here. I have this amazing mansion. I have this permanent dwelling place, and yet God is still living in a tent. Anybody go camping? One of the things about camping that at least I like about camping is knowing that I get to go home. Like, I don't have to live here. I don't have to stay here. I can pack up this tent, and I can go sleep in my bed. There's something that's, that, that, that there's like, there's this itch sort of when you're in a tent of knowing this isn't permanent. This isn't forever, right? It's the same thing of being in a hotel. You're like, this is nice, but I miss my bed and my shower and my bathroom. Like, it's not permanent. And he's looking down and he's seeing this, this tent. He's like, well, I want something permanent for God. I want something that says God's going to be here forever. His intention is right. 
And God responds. What does he say? He says, David, I hear your intention. I hear your heart. But instead of you building me a house, I'm going to build you a house. And this promise is doing two things for David. One, it is establishing what we would call a hereditary monarchy. In other words, that David's descendants would continue to be the kings over Israel. Now contrast that with King Saul. Saul was named king of Israel. He did wrong. And what happened? God took the kingdom from Saul and he gave it to David. David wasn't related to King Saul. It wasn't his son. It wasn't his nephew. It was a completely new family. God took the kingdom from Saul and gave it to David. So up until this point, there wasn't a hereditary monarchy. Are you with me? There is no assumption at this point that David's kids would be king. So far in Israel's history, that's not how it worked. And yet in this promise, God is saying to David, your kids, and from this point on, the kings over Israel will come from your family. So that's part of this promise. But the second part of this promise is God building David a house that through David's line, ultimately, the king of kings and the Lord of lords and the savior of all humanity would come into the world. So this is a promise that would be fulfilled in his firstborn son or his nextborn son. And it would be a promise fulfilled through ultimately King Jesus coming into the earth. All of this to say is that David had his plans and God had far better plans. David had his plans. All right, God, we're settled. Man, there's no more fighting going on. Everything's good. And so, God, I want to make you at the center of everything. And I want to make you a house, a permanent dwelling place here in Israel. And God says, that's a nice idea and all, but how about I build you a house? How about I build your name permanently here on the earth? And then ultimately, through your descendants, King Jesus is going to enter the earth. When God is at the center of our lives, God plans our ways, directs our steps, and he writes our story. Can I encourage you tonight that wherever you find yourself in life, make God the center of your life. Make him your chief aim and allow him to write your story. What I mean by that, allow him to both direct your steps day in and day out, but also allow him to make your plans for your life. I think we often think that our plans are the best plans and what I want, I know what's best for me. And so we don't allow ourselves to trust the plans of God. But when we surrender ourselves and submit ourselves to God, his plans end up being far better than what we could come up for ourselves. Worship team, you guys can come up here. I'm going to close. Last year, it's the, it's the uh, Christmas season, and so Christmas parties are going to start happening. Last year, we had a staff Christmas party um, for our, the staff here at Calvary Chapel. And uh, we do, at our staff Christmas party, we do um, like a gift exchange. You guys know about gift exchanges? Yeah, where you give somebody a gift, and then uh, one of the things we do is like the... Uh, everyone calls it something different, but it's where you pick a gift under the tree, you open the gift, and then you have like one of three options. You can keep the gift, you can steal a gift, or you can open up a new gift. You guys ever done that? Okay, so if you haven't, that's what you do. So we're at the staff Christmas party, and uh, I open my gift, and I got like a gift card. Um, I think it was like a Chick-fil-A gift card or something like that. I'm like, yeah, this is great. 
But for some reason in me, I'm like, there could be something better in there. You know what I mean? Like there's always that like Chick-fil-A is good, but what if there's something cooler underneath the tree? I don't know if I want to keep the Chick-fil-A gift card. What if there's something greater, something better that's not this? And so I'm like, I'm not going to keep the Chick-fil-A gift card. I'm going to pick a new present. And uh, so I go, I pick up a new present, open it. looks cool. It's a nice, big, sturdy package. I open it up. It's a jar of pickles. I kid you not, it's a jar of pickles. Traded my Chick-fil-A gift card for a jar of pickles. Um, I didn't even keep the pickles. It was hosted by uh, one of the staff families here. And when we left, I went in their fridge and I stuck the jar of pickles in the fridge and then I left. Um, I don't even know if they realized I did. I just stuck the pickles in there. Um, Anyways, I traded away my Chick-fil-A gift card that I had in my hand for a jar of pickles. The reason I say that is, is sometimes I think we think the plans of God are like that. That we have our plans and we know them and they're close to us and it's going to work out for me because I'm in charge and I'm in control and I don't want to relinquish control. I don't want to give up and take what God has because what if what God has is worse than what I have for myself? What if God, oh, we already, what well, we think our plan is is Chick-fil-A gift card and we think that God's plan is going to be like a jar of pickles. It's going to be less. It's not going to be as good. It's not going to be as satisfying. Can I encourage you tonight? That is not how God works. Everything that you think you desire and everything that you think you want, God's plans, God's ways, God's desire for you is far and away better and beyond what you could ask, think, or imagine. And when you make God the center of your life, and when you say, I'm going to be all in for Jesus, I don't care what people think about me, I don't care what people say about me, I don't care how difficult it might be or how confusing it might be, I'm going to follow after Jesus. And we commit our lives to him. We allow for him to write our story. And his story for us is far better than what we could write up for ourselves. So let me encourage you tonight. Make God at the center. Make him your chief aim. Understand his word and his ways and follow after him and allow him to both direct your steps and write your story.